This is Dylan FM, a freak music club podcast on Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place. This season, we're going deep on Time Out of Mind to celebrate its 25th anniversary. Here's your host, Craig Danielov. It was nearly seven years ago that we first learned that the Bob Dylan archives even existed, and then that they were headed to Tulsa, Oklahoma. A lot has happened since then. The archives have been organized and open to researchers. The riches they contain has given us new books and articles filled with insights and details that we never would have had about Dylan's process and history. The Bob Dylan Center has been built. It's a beautiful new facility where anyone can go to see selections from the archives and other exhibits. And the scholarly arm of the project, officially called the TU Institute for Bob Dylan Studies, has produced a series of conferences and events. These have brought academics, experts, fanatics, and fans of all sorts together at a series of in-person and online events. Our guest today is Sean Latham director of that TU Institute for Bob Dylan Studies. Sean is an English and comparative literature professor at Tulsa University and has been since 2001. He was focused on James Joyce and is the editor of the prestigious James Joyce Quarterly. But now he spends most of his time on Bob Dylan, and you'll hear how he made that transition and how he puts together these tremendous conferences, the next of which is The World of Bob Dylan, which will be in Tulsa on June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, 2023. You're going to hear a lot more about that event today, and I think, like me, you'll want to grab some airplane tickets and secure a place to stay. Many of you will also want to spend some of your holiday time creating or finalizing your proposal for papers or presentations that you might want to give at that 2023 event. The call is open for these until January 15th, 2023, which you'll hear more about and can learn about at dylan.tulsa.edu. We also look back at the 2019 conference, the great book that came out of it, and other work and events that have come to us from Tulsa. For this special episode, we're putting the full conversation we have with Sean onto our public and premium feeds. And while episodes are usually on YouTube in audio format, this one is on YouTube as a full video as well. You can find the link in the show notes if you want to watch instead of listen. Now, here's our talk with Sean Latham. Sean, thank you for joining today to talk about what's going on at the University of Tulsa Institute for Dylan Studies and specifically conferences past and future. Of course, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm excited about it. There's, there's a lot going on down there. And obviously, at least for, for the Dylan world, you guys have uh, get, get a lot of focus. I, I, I want to talk today about, in generally, about the Institute for Dylan Studies. Mm-hmm. In your work there, I want to go back to the 2019 conference and a little bit your Beats conference, uh, both of which I attended, which were fantastic. Let's jump at first to the kind of most important thing, which is you have announced another conference, and there's right now still an open call for papers and presentations. So why don't you tell us what's coming and what people should know right now about uh, that event next June, I guess it is. Yeah, well, you know, I think like a lot of the rest of the world, of course, we're eager to get back to in-person programming and return to the the real successes I think we encountered in 2019 when we opened the world of Bob Dylan, uh, the inaugural conference um, created by the the Institute for Bob Dylan Studies here at the University of Tulsa. Uh, That completely, that event completely surprised us. uh, And I know we'll talk about it 
more a bit later, but really set the stage for you know what we've been able to do. Even going through these COVID years, we've only seen our some of our numbers increase and our engagement increase. Um, so we're very eager to welcome people back in person. So this uh, late June, at basically the same time we've been running these conferences. So for, for us, it's going to be a long span, May 30th to June 4th. We've got this big conference with the world of Dylan kind of built into it, um, running uh, basically June 2nd through June 4th. Uh, so about the length we've always done these world of Bob Dylan pieces. Uh, as you said, we've got the call for, for papers out. One thing that certainly surprised us in 2019 when we first put this together was we thought this was going to be a small academic conference that we'd get a collection of academic kinds of papers and people would come and we might have 200 people. We sold out all 500 spaces we had available two months in advance. We had only about half of the people that registered for the conference and attended had uh, academic affiliations. So we had people that were experts in Dylan coming from all different sort of professions and walks of life and parts of the world. So we knew we'd tapped into something much bigger and we're trying to lean into that much more effectively this year. So as you said, it's not just a call for papers, it's a call for presentations, art performances. We really want to capture the rich spectrum of stuff that people do in and around Dylan because that helps create, I think, some of the energy and excitement um, that made the conference work in 2019 that let us do that big uh, birthday conference uh, in, in 20, what was that, 2020? Uh, so, you know, this is, this is going to be uh, the sort of return to what we'd started to build in 2019 in person. And absolutely through January 15th, we're still eagerly accepting and welcoming submissions of all kinds. What are you thinking about the size, given what you saw three, four years ago now, I guess? It'll be four by the time this conference goes on. And therefore, the capacity you have. And it's interesting also that it's not just academic papers, but that breadth of ideas you're open to. Yeah, so this time, uh, in some sense, we don't know, but we do have, last time we had part of the con of a conference hotel, basically. The larger parts uh, had been given over to another event. This year, we've got the entire hotel, so we've got the capacity, basically, to accommodate almost as many people, really, as want to come. You know, we, we're expecting a number that might be close to 1,000 this year if we're, if people are, are feeling, like, safe, safe and want to travel. I think that's not unlike what we could have done in 2019. There are still a lot of people that want to come to Tulsa to see the Bob Dylan Center. You know, I think yeah. this would at them with the opportunity to do that. Uh, and the world of Bob Dylan itself is being embedded and sort of wrapped around with an even bigger conference that we're calling uh, Switchyard Tulsa. So the first few days that I mentioned of that sort of May 30th through June 4th range are really a sort of big ideas conference where we're welcoming writers, poets, um, thinkers from around the world, really people that are doing all kinds of interesting work in their fields with, for us, a real focus on banned books, banned ideas. Uh, and so they'll be speaking during the day in a kind of smaller version, or maybe I should say a South by Southwest version before the tech bros took over South by Southwest when it was a kind of music and ideas festival. We want to, we want to rekindle that, that spirit and, and do it here in Tulsa. So we're going to have those events happening in the first part of the week. And then every night from May 30th through June 4th, we've also got uh, live music playing both at the historic Canes ballroom here. Uh, as well as stages in the conference hotel. So we're going to have up to 30 bands playing throughout those that six-day stand. So in this case, it won't be just the Dylan conference like we had in 2019. There's going to be music going on, Roots, basically Roots America wow. all night. So we're, we're thinking of something much, much bigger that'll have Dylan at its core, but has this much bigger thing wrapped around. And is that other conference yours, or is that in cooperation with other Tulsa 
enterprises? No, both of these are run fully by the University of Tulsa. So we're trying to sort of build around that idea of what the audience that we know Dylan can bring. And this gives us a way to sort of create an anchor to to do what Dylan himself has always done, sort of open out this conversation to other forms of art, thinking artists, musicians, creators of all kinds. So, you know, I think that's what that's what makes Dylan so special as an artist, as a performer, uh, you know, as just his role in American culture. He's not just one thing. He's not just a songwriter. He's not just a performer. Um, he's really a pivot for all kinds of major ways of thinking about culture in America. And we want to we want to lean into that and sort of use Dylan as a way to reach out to much more broadly um, than rather than have this be solely a kind of Dylan Obsessives weekend. We're still going to offer that Dylan Obsessives weekend, but you're also going to have a lot more options as well. Wow, that's really exciting. I mean, I was already looking forward to it this, but now this is going to be great. And both the increased size and the increased breadth and, and everything. That's fantastic. I hope so. If I'm still on my feet when you get here, you can be impressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in terms of the, the let's, Let's drill in on the obsessives piece yeah. for, for a little bit. In, in terms of that, um, have you programmed that and you need things to fill in the slot from the proposals or are you going to wait and see what kind of proposals come in to decide? Because that is, you know, the mix between the, the slightly more academic, at least style, which was dominant in the last one, has the guts of it been designed and can you say anything about that or do you need to see what comes in and you're going to build something out of the pieces laid in front of you so i think i think if you came in 2019 you'll feel things that seem very familiar to you from that event so yeah we're waiting to see what what comes in and that's really that's really the meat of anything like this is is it's it's cool to have say grill marcus or uh you know uh Daphne Brooks or somebody stand up and talk about bob dylan and that it's nice but the best part of these things is inevitably hearing the guy no one had heard about come and talk about Dylan's harmonicas and the way that he uses them. Or, I mean, when we did that uh, 80th birthday thing, the the ticket collectors and the sort of gallery of ticket stubs, you know, and, and how people collect and think about these relationships to Dylan. So we, it's always going to be urgent to us, an urgent priority to us to leave the gates as wide open as we can. So we capture all of that richness that circulates around Dylan. It's, Unlike, I mean, I, I am an English professor by trade inherently. So, you know, I always tend toward that academic way of thinking. And what 2019 taught us was that's only one way of thinking about Dylan, especially a guy that's still alive and still has such an active fan base. Dylan is not sort of retreated into the academy in the way, say, Virginia Woolf or James Joyce has, where it's really mostly academics that think about these figures. Dylan has a huge sort of impact on on the way we think about all kinds of things and on, on well beyond academia. So those, that open call is a way for us to try to capture as much of that richness as we can. And then we will, of course, structure that with keynote talks um, that will draw some really interesting people. And I think when we begin to roll these out shortly after January, people will be pretty excited about some of the people that we've got coming. Like as we've done in the past, there'll be sort of more scholarly folks. There'll be more journalistic type writers and thinkers about Dylan and we're as we always have, we'll be bringing in contemporary musicians to talk about either people that played with Dylan or people that have been clearly and deeply influenced by Dylan's work. So a lot of that DNA from 2019 will still feel visible, but we think there'll be even a, a wider breadth of choice. Yeah, and that intersection, it was interesting at, at the 2019 event because it it felt, I guess like you described this, it felt like an academic conference that didn't turn out that way because <laughs> there were so many <laughs> other people there. and you know, the hallway chatter and some of the presentations, but the overall vibe was, was very mixed, which I think is interesting because 
I think in the Dylan world, the academic folks who have existed for a long time didn't always or don't always mix that, um, you know, aren't always spread across the fan base, uh, you know, the populist average Facebook, Twitter, you know, concert people. So I think they, they got that exposure. I know that was true for, for me, right? I'm as obsessive as I can be, but I wouldn't have heard people analyzing it either that way or the specific, very niche aspects of what they did. Uh, so it's great that you're mixing those two. And I think both sides embraced it. I think the academics liked maybe not being only with their own kind, uh, but I think yeah, the general but- fans got a ton out of it as well. Yeah, you know, when we saw when we saw people write this up afterward, and you know, everything from personal blogs to like you know major league pieces, that was it. that was always the takeaway, right? That and it, and because because of how we could host it down here, and it's a relatively small and compact downtown, it was not just the sort of oh, it's the cool hallway chatter. It's you know, you go to a bar, you go to a restaurant for dinner, and you realize the people next to you are also talking about Dylan and uh, you know whatever they like. We had a whole high school class do their reunion here in 2019, right? Uh, and and they got to talking with the academics and it just became this great, and there was no sort of sense of hierarchy that there's only one way to talk about it, but that's, that's really essential to us. Academics are extremely narrow in their focus. We can talk about things in, in very narrow ways, but we often miss some of the bigger connections and, and, and especially the sort of emotional affective relationships that art has on people. So putting people in conversation around those things and things that academics would never talk about. I mean, I'll go back to that sort of ticket stub collecting, but all of the sort of collecting is a, is a, is a world that's largely foreign, I think, uh, to, you know, to, to the academic world. And yet there's so much fascinating work that's being done there that will eventually become archives of all kinds that researchers will use. So to be, be able to be in conversation with the people, uh, Mitch Blank, right. For example, who has, you know, done this enormous service uh, to, to to Dylan fans, Dylan scholars, all of us by preserving these massive archives of tapes so that we can can track and hear so much of Dylan's career. That that those moments of interchange are just the, some of the things that I think make the world special. Yeah, Mitch is Mitch is the best, and you obviously had a lot of uh, of, of other folks down there. But I also think the academics, frankly, you know, apply a a sense, a sense of rigor and some um, processes to the way they go at it that, you know, the fans, as you know, come at it from as sloppy and off the cuff and kind of random way, which is their right, right? Just a personal thing, but introducing or exposing that academic rigor. I was looking at rereading a lot of parts of the book that came out of 2019 last night and thinking about how that sits against other books, other papers, other things. So it, it's just really a service to bring these two together. So I'm glad both that you did it and that it's going to happen again. And and I, I do think everybody gets along, which is yeah. a little bit surprising. Well, I think, you know, the way we treat this is the way we frame it for ourselves internally is we're, we're inviting experts. It just turns out that there are a lot of experts that don't happen to have letters after their names or these expertise lurks in surprising way in surprising places. We had a number of physicists like present at the 2019 conference. I mean, yeah, they're academics. They're, they have .edu after their name, but they were not who we were expecting was going to come, right? But they have always had this Dylan obsession. They So they they bring a kind of academic rigor, but it's not the kind that an English professor would bring. And because of Dylan's work, we've got, you know, there are a lot of flavors of academics. There are 
people like me that want to see it as poetry. They're the musician, you know, sort of music scholars who are like, oh my God, quit listening to the words. Can't you hear what the music is doing? And there are historians that say, quit listening, quit worrying about like which word he chose. Can't you see the impact this had on the civil rights movement or whatever? It's, and even though all those different ways of approaching it, even within the academic field, they're I think, just as, you know, just as interesting and create just as much of that kind of cauldron of ideas that, that just kind of filled up those, those days in 2019. Say, take a step back to the Institute for Dillon Studies in, in specific, I guess, not, not in yeah. general. So you've been involved, I mean, you were involved then, so I guess since the very beginning, which makes it four years now? Uh, yeah, probably a little bit longer than that. I mean, I, you know, I can tell my superhero origin story <laughs> if you want, because it, it is a lesson in uh, being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, if you could quickly, because I was interested in what, in how it came to you, you know, if it was that you were at Tulsa or you had to apply because you were the biggest Dylan guy there or. Oh, not even that. Yeah. I mean, it, so yeah, I was, as I said, kind of, kind of dumb luck, I suppose. Uh, I, I came to Tulsa in 2001. I came here for one very particular reason. We moved here from Rhode Island. This seemed like the far reaches of the universe as far as we were concerned. Uh, but weirdly enough. Tulsa is basically the world headquarters of James Joyce studies. The James Joyce Quarterly has been published here for almost 60 years now. Uh, we have some of the very best collections at our university in modern, and what we call modernist writing. So writing from the early part of the 20th century, James Joyce, Rebecca West, people like that. So this, I came here because this is just kind of a beacon within my field. And I had the opportunity to take over the James Joyce Quarterly, uh, which was an impossible opportunity to, to miss at the time. So I was happily doing that work when uh, the University of Tulsa, as a minority partner, bought a small piece of the Dillon Archive alongside George Kaiser Family Foundation. So we had 10%, they purchased 90%. And part of this agreement was we had just built a thing called the Helmerich Center for American Research, which, which was a venue we used in 2019, uh, which was this just state-of-the-art archival storage facility. Uh, and so we were going to store the sort of actual Dillon Archive safely there while they built a Museum down here. Uh, as this project began to take shape, and before it had been announced that the acquisition had been made, our then university president called me into his office, which is usually not something you want to have happen. <laughs> it's not exactly like getting called to the principal, but it usually means a lot of work. And he sort of said, you know, uh, we just we just did this thing. We just acquired this piece of the Dillon Archive. What, you know, what do you think? I said, astonishing. I can't believe it's, I was, it existed much less that it's coming to Tulsa. That's amazing. And he said, well, you seem to be the one guy on campus who knows how to spend his whole career thinking about just one person. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, do you think we could do something similar for Dylan that we did for Joyce basically in 1963 when those, all those materials came? I said, absolutely. Jo Dylan is to the second half of the 20th century, what Joyce was to the first half of the 20th century. The singularly most important touchstone figure even if you haven't read it listen to it if you don't like it it doesn't really matter joyce changed the way we think about what a novel does dylan changes the idea of what we think popular music is so put them together we've we've covered you know basically the 20th century and i said we can so we can absolutely do this for him and he said great let's start an institute congratulations you're in charge <laughs> and i run only the university side of it the idea was you know we would spin up a kind of research uh, conference uh, academic component to this, while GKFF, uh, who now owns the 100% of that archive, uh, would operate this Dillon Center, the kind of public facing piece. And we've been in essentially a kind of uh, partnership relationship um, 
since that time. But that's that's really how I got involved. I just happened to be in the right place. Uh, after 20 years at that point of having studied James Joyce, I was actually quite relieved and happy to take on somebody else. Joyce wrote basically four books. So Dylan's much more prolific and so, <laughs> you know, it gives me a lot more to do. Against the scale you now know exists in the Dylan universe, where were you as a Dylan fan? Meaning serious, hardcore, moderate, insane? Uh, no, no, much closer to moderate. <laughs> I mean, you know, like many people, I mean, I, I grew up in the, I mean, we're all, our music tastes are inevitably shaped by the, our years in high school, right? So uh, I graduated from high school in 1994, generally considered the nadir of Dylan's career. I mean, Dylan did not appear on any kind of radio station that I listened to. None of my friends had much interest in Dylan, except as this kind of cool retro chic thing. Um, and, you know, I would say of my friends, like we all had, uh, I mean, we were listening mostly to Easy because it really offended everybody around us. Right? I mean, it was that moment, uh, you know, but we all had Greatest Hits Volume 2 and you could turn on the classic music, uh, classic rock stations uh, where I was growing up and easily hear a Dylan song. I'm usually one of three. Right. Just like uh, a woman. Yeah. Well, it was uh, it was uh, like a Rolling Stone and. Uh, oh, I can't even remember, but uh, Tangled Up in Blue. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, the big, the biggest of the big hits. So, but I can't say that I was, had been like spending a lot of my time listening to Dylan. I did get a little interested, uh, when time out of mind came out. Um, and then especially when, uh, love and theft came out, cause it was such a literary thing. I had just finished graduate school. I'd read Eric Lott's love and theft. It was clear Dylan was thinking in interesting ways and kind of almost in literary kinds of ways that were interesting to us. But, you know, I listened to it. I didn't think I should sit down and write a book about this or anything. So, uh, and you know, that, that same moment, I'll go back and say, when, when the president said, great, let's start this Institute. He also said, we need to look like we know what we're doing. <laughs> so you need to start teaching a Dylan course right away. <laughs> so I immediately, uh, offered what would then be a Dylan course in the spring. This was early in the fall semester. Uh, so I spent that time just gearing up as rapidly as I could to get ready uh, so that we were actually teaching a course on Bob Dylan at the university of Tulsa when it was announced that the Dylan archives would so, oh. And that's really when I became obsessive about it. And my whole, I mean, academic careers rarely steer like, you know, they tend to steer like oil tankers, like very slowly in some other direction. This was much more like a jet ski suddenly into Dylan. Uh, I moved to disentangle myself from a lot of the other stuff I was doing. And, you know, I've really devoted everything since then to focusing on Dylan and this unique resource that's here. Wow. Let me ask you one obsessive technical detail about the acquisition. Yeah, I, I read somewhere at the time that what happened was the purchase, forget the split there between the Kaiser Foundation and the university, but that the purchase was for 20% of the archives and then Dylan donated the rest. Is that, from an accounting point of view, is that true? I have no, I have no idea. Uh, that was way above my pay grade here. <laughs> and, and I've never seen those contracts. I, I do have, I just was moving offices. I have the original catalog we got um, from for the archive, which is, it's itself a very interesting document because hmm. much of the material was then withdrawn. It was just personal material that shouldn't have been in an archive, medical records, things like that. Um, yeah. Like for his kids and things like things that no archive keeps those things accessible to the public. Uh, so, but the, the actual details of how the deal got worked out, it was a done deal by the time I showed up on the scene. Talk a little bit about what the Institute does. I mean, what I know about is the, the the massive, and it was a massive shoot for our first undertaking, not knowing, you know, on either side, maybe 
what was going on. But the 2019 project, you did the book that came out of it. You did the Beats project. You've got this new one coming along. I know there's been a couple of um, more modest Tulsa events, some, yeah. some folks. But um, what is the work of the Institute in addition to the conferences we see? Yeah, I mean, I th- that's an interesting question because I, th- I think we're still resolving that. I mean, it's only in May the Dillon Center opened. So for while the Dillon Center was building itself and while they were hiring staff and getting the archives together, we sort of took over a, at least a piece of public programming for them. We ran these conferences. We certainly ran the big ones like like World of Dillon in 2019. We ran smaller ones like Dillon and the Beach that accompanied the opening of the center here. Um, the very first one we ran was actually called Dillon in the Classroom, and it was really just to invite high school and college teachers from around the region to come. It was just after it had been announced, and we did a day and a half thing where teachers of all kinds talked about how they bring Dillon's works into all kinds oh. of classrooms, art classrooms, history, uh, literature, music. And so that was our sort of just getting our feet wet kind of conference. So we tend to do one-off events like that. And of course we host talks. Um, we had intended to start an academic journal focused on Dylan. I think our plans for that are evolving. That's They're not going away, um, but I think that's going to be part of now a somewhat larger uh, publication project that I can't, can't give you quite the details about yet, but, but will certainly be well known by the time uh, the event rolls around this summer. Uh, so I think that's a significant portion of what we're doing. And one thing that's, this goes to something I said at the top, one of the things that's begun to stand out to us is that Dylan is a really interesting figure. I'm not sure that we need a Dylan conference every year. They're fun to run and it's a nice group. I think having one every other year in person that focuses on Dylan is a, is a great way to do this. So I think what you're going to see part of the Institute's activity will shift toward this world of model where we start engaging musicians and cultural figures around Dylan. So we might, for example, and there are no plans, like I'm just going to, this is pure speculation just to be clear, right? But imagine something like a world of Patti Smith or even a world of Dolly Parton, right? Where what we do is sort of leverage this idea of, of the kind of music and thinking and work that can happen around Dylan and say, look, that, that same kind of work because of Dylan, right? A lot of music and songwriters and performers are in Dylan's mold now. They've sort of come after him and they are major cultural figures. They construct their own musical cultural worlds around them. So we can see a model looking forward, I think, where we have both a world, of, essentially a world of Dylan running every, what is this? odd year, uh, and, and then every even year, we'll find cognate or, uh, yeah, cognate performers, artists, musicians that we think um, sort of align with Dylan in interesting ways, but also suggest the ways in which this can, can broaden and, and frankly diversify. I mean, you know, I can go back and say also one thing that certainly stood out if you were here, you know it, at the 2019 conferences, this is an audience that has a very specific demographic signature <laughs> to it. Uh, it's old, it's older, it's whiter, and it's much more male uh, than any random sampling of the population. And it's not that we want a random sample, but we do need to be aware, I think, of the, the, the issues that surround uh, that. And, and this may give us a way to sort of help bring other people to Dylan uh, who might not otherwise have thought about him as being an important or interesting figure in their own musical biographies. I can assure you the stats on um, podcasts and YouTube videos like this mirror those. (laughs) (laughs) 
I open I open some YouTube videos we post sometimes, and it's a hundred percent male and a hundred percent over fifty five or sixty five, um, which is you know the hundred percent the dominance is not shocking. The hundred percent uh, is shocking. That, that, that is pretty absolute. And you know, yeah. it's I work in a university. DEI issues. I mean, you know, these these things are important to us and. Uh, and they're important to keeping Dylan alive. Like when, you know, so when I think about what, what made Joyce live past Joyce's death, like, why do we still talk about James Joyce? Why was there a thing called the James Joyce quarterly that some dude born in seventies actually wanted to move to Tulsa to study long after Joyce's death. And it's because Joyce could, he wrote about so much other things. He brought issues of gender and sexuality and, and national and national identities and post-colonial identities and all these things sort of into the conversation. Dylan absolutely does the same thing, but you know, to go back to that kind of, you have to be careful of the lock that fandom can have. I think on position that we, it's too easy to sort of carve him into a particular niche. Uh, oh, he's that white guy from the sixties, right. Would be the, the most familiar one, which even Dylan doesn't want to be <laughs> right. Never wanted to be. Uh, and so, you know, so I think we have to be very attentive and, and that's, as you said, that sort of older, whiter male, that, that's not a demographic that 20 years from now is going to have students coming to take courses on Dylan at any university or making use. And it's of not even, art. it doesn't even represent Dylan's audience today. If you go to, you know, go to concerts or see yeah. whatever, it's the question of the f- hardcore or the serious fan side of it. So it's, it's a little bit overamplified, but finding that segue to do things that the less fanatical as well as younger, as well as more diverse audience um, would engage with, becomes you know the programming responsibility which i'm sure is how you're looking at it. yeah and I, I mean I, you know i'll go back to that first class that i said i taught on dylan here it was called just bob dylan i think uh and on the first day it was a very strange experience i sort of had a I had a beautiful class built <laughs> to welcome them to dylan we were going to do tangled up in blue i assume they all knew it we we're going to talk about how it works like a painting and it's a song and it's a story and how do you mix all these pieces together right and no one in the class had ever heard of this song so I'm like, well, okay, this is not a very good first day activity, but I can still do this. Let's talk about uh, blowing in the wind. And they're like, I can see blank faces. No one in the class had heard blowing in the wind, except for one sort of timorous young woman in the back raises her hand and says, uh, Professor Latham, I know that song. It's, it's not by Bob Dylan. It's by Peter, Paul, and Mary. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> all right, class is over. <laughs> so you all need to go home. Uh, we'll meet again on Wednesday or whatever. But in the meantime, I want you to just go Google Bob Dylan and your favorite artist. I guarantee you, your favorite artist is probably covered a Dylan song. Just come back and talk about that next time. And sure enough, the whole class comes back. That meaning this was the height of Adele, right? So like, oh my God, like Adele didn't write that breakup song. And, and you know, it just, it changed the whole tenor of the class. It changed their their ability to engage with the material. And I created a whole little class of Dylan fans that was as diverse as our student body. So, I, I mean, I, you're right. Like the, the fandom is there. The, the music will speak to a lot of different people. They just need to get access to it, uh, you know, and, 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 and be told sort of why it's so important and help, help see what its influence is on, on the music they listen to. I'd like to ask about the, the book that came out of 2019, which is just fantastic. I'm, you know, I would think people who wanted every recording the next day and you know, there was so much there and we we're obsessives, right? We, we, we want it all, but you, you took some time and you did a beautifully produced, very, very thoughtful book of that. So a, how are you thinking about 
capturing and documenting these sessions? What have you thought about, you know, streaming versus live as you go forward? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I will say this, um, you know, for and for both the birthday conference, the 80th birthday conference, and then Dylan and the Beats, we got, we obviously streamed everything. We did a hybrid version last year uh, for the or earlier this year, I suppose, for the Dylan and the Beats thing, um, which seemed to go very, very well. When we think about trying to scale that up to the world of Dylan, like to to, to the full in conference, multiple sessions running simultaneously model, it's a big project. Yeah. Um, so, and we really want to encourage people to come to this thing. Um, so I, I, I'm thinking what we will do is probably record the keynotes, um, maybe one or two sessions. That is, we'll probably set up one room where we can record. We will not live stream it. It just creates enormous amounts of professional, I mean, of just producer stress, right? Where, and, and when there are people in the room, especially live, this is so yeah. inside baseball, you probably don't care, right? But like every, every one of us have been to an event where we have to watch somebody stand there and camera when there's a room full of four it's inevitable people, yes you know because there are people online so we don't want to do that if we can avoid it so we're going to probably have just one room that's recording uh not live broadcasting uh and really encourage people to come in person for this for this return to to live programming so was the book a good experience for you and and the rece- i assume the reception was good but how you know, oh yeah. I mean, we didn't, that, that was another one of those where we didn't, it was like 2019. We didn't know it was going to happen exactly. Uh, my was published with the university press, Cambridge university press, and they, uh, they think I'm a hero. I mean, we can't, I can't even tell you how many copies of that book we sold. Uh, it's one of the best selling books in Cambridge's, um, oh, wow. lineup, I guess, uh, and historically one of their best selling books. So, uh, and it was just a really, there people were waiting for this and, and waiting for that. I think what the, that book provides, which is not a sort of tip to tail story of Dylan. We've got great biographies to do that. Not a completely random collection of essays. That is, I didn't solicit the 20 best papers of the conference, right? We tried to sort of give people who'd never really known much about Dylan, or maybe you knew a lot about one section of his life, but wanted to dip into something else. This book gave you a way to access all the different ways that we might be either musically, historically, religiously, all of those different kinds of things. So we really wanted to make this a kind of guide to Bob Dylan that didn't have to be read from beginning to end. That was definitely not Dylan for dummies that gave you a chance to see like, here's how accessible, but really smart people think about some of these topics in relationship to Dylan's work uh, and just create a book that people could dip in and out of when they wanted to. And I, you know, I, th- I think I know I've heard lots of people talk about it as a useful reference book. Like when you want to go back and, you know, see this, you know, Ann Power's amazing essay on there on Dylan's body and gender. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's totally cutting new ground. There are other pieces in there that I think will be familiar to a lot of people, but that, that dredge up some new details. We had we obviously had a piece on there on the archive. So, you know, we tried to provide as, as big a kind of sampler as we could without trying to say, this is the only thing that you can think about Dylan or here's the definitive take, but this is just how expansive his world is and how many different ways there are into him. It's hard to do a unique Dylan book, and you clearly <laughs> did um, for a lot of reasons. I think it's that introduction of the academic to some degree to the secular or whatever we, we, we need to call the fans. Um, the organization is really interesting, you know, to see the progression through the genres of music and the and the different aspects that you've done. I, I also have to say your your opening essay and and that idea of uh, multiple Dylans and kind of the overlapping ghosts and contending with them, I think is, is 
fascinating. Um, I know you have a second piece in there, but I thought that one was is really an interesting way to wrestle with the enormity of Dylan. And as you point out, the way he wrestles with the enormity of Dylan. I, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I thank, thank you for that. Uh, and yeah, that's, I just, it's one of the things that is coming, as I said earlier, a bit from the outside of the, the Dylan world. And so coming in, I hope with some, some degree we're therefore with fresh eyes to, to a lot of these conversations. That's the thing that just stands out. I mean, it's just, it's astonishing to me that I went and saw Dylan perform in Tulsa right? not long ago. Uh, and he's 81 years old and he's still doing things that make people talk. I mean, we, a, a new book, Dylan just gave us a new book to argue and think about here. I don't I'm sure that's going to play a big role at the, at the conference. Uh, you know, I know we're getting a lot of proposals about that thing. Yeah. So the guy that the fact that this guy can keep being so creative can keep, and it's so, I mean, when you look at his life, I mean, I, I talked about the second half of the 20th century, but we're not talking about a career that covers the entire basically sonic second half of the 20th century and the first quarter of the 21st century, there are very few artists, period, that wrote over that length of their lives. Dylan got young, famous young and has remained incredibly productive, you know, into his, into his ninth decade now. And I, I find that a singularly astonishing fact about the guy and how you manage to, 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 to wrestle with all of that past every time you step to the microphone uh, and you see it you, know, you see it when you go look at the archives. The, the archives are behind this wall, actually. That's why I keep gesturing over my shoulder. Our offices are right next door to the Dillon Center. Uh, you know, when you see, like, just how big that archive is and how much Dylan is constantly processing it himself in the process of making music and the process of remaking his old songs, I, I don't know if there are very many artists that have ever labored under that kind of, that kind of history with their own writing. And, and for so long. So you're telling me that the room you're in, when the, when the Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts is replayed and someone tries to bust through the wall to get <laughs> to the, that's the wall. I don't think we haven't considered this. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, as you can tell, talking to me, I'm sure I'm not the first. Don't think we wouldn't consider it. It's like, wait a minute, they're behind that wall? Okay, I can take their care uh, of that wall. I mean, that um, seems like a skull on the wall behind me, but really, that eyeball is <laughs> like the bullseye for where we know to go in. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. And there's a hex pre-placed than anyone who touches it. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, but the, the comments you just made actually leads me to, I'll, what I'll set up as my final question, which is after it sounds like it's four or five plus years in this, um, how do you think differently about Dylan? Maybe what you just said is the answer, but you know, the, the enormity of him, every little slice we can all deal with and go deep and you try to step back and then it just, the mind kind of can't handle it. You're now doing that, you know, professionally and in an academic sense um, and interacting with the rest of the Dylan world, both what's behind that wall and all the people you're soliciting for yep. these events. What impact has that had on you or how would you summarize your relationship with Dylan now having gone through four or five years of that? Well, you know, I, I recently wrote something about this when I went to see Dylan perform when he was touring Rough and Rowdy Ways here in Tulsa. I, I talked a lot about the way that album for me works as a kind of meditation on death. I mean, that's hardly a great insight, but also there's a kind of like crossing the river sticks in there that's that's interesting to me, just in the, the, the riverside roadhouse right on the pathway to death. Just seems very Greek and very Homeric. And 
and when I, you know, when I, when I was writing and sort of thinking about that piece and watching him perform and it was a, it was a weird performance. I was fortunate, uh, purely by luck. I got front row seats, but Dylan was doing this bit where he's like behind the piano. So if you're at all close to the stage, I couldn't see anything except the very top of his head. Uh, and he, he put lighting on top of the, uh, on top of the piano as well. So that even if you could kind of see his face, the light, the glare meant you couldn't actually see him. So it was this disembodied voice completely coming from behind a piano with the rest of the band doing that like Renaissance painting, you know, everybody's kind of leaning in watching him play, but maybe he's also dissecting a corpse back there. And as I said, in this piece I wrote, I think I became a fan of Dylan at that moment. I've always had the kind of cold critics eye. I needed to, to do my job. Can't love these things too much. Cause I've also got to, got to be critical about them. But there was a moment there that was something like, oh, now I get what a lot of other people are feeling. Like, there were some special moments in that, in that concert and the way that he crafted his performance there that was different than anything I'd seen on film or in the past. That, yeah, I think that's, that may be the moment that I became something like a Dylan fan. Hopefully he can still function as a, as a <laughs> Dylan critic as well. Yeah, there's definitely an unexplainable additional thing in the room. I mean, that is is incredible, which is obviously why people have ticket stub collections like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it was a moment. I, yeah, I think especially there. I mean, we were just coming out of COVID. We had live performances again. All those kinds of things probably contributed to the to the atmosphere. But uh, but it was a distinctive atmosphere and a real sense of. Pre- and I'd seen him many times before and never had that sense of presence. But somehow, not seeing him made him more present to me in that. Bob brought a little bit of a new attitude. To, to these this last two years as well, which has helped. But yeah. anyway, we, we won't go off on live, Dylan. We'll be here another two hours. <laughs> Sean, uh, I am, and I'm sure everyone is looking forward greatly to the 2023 world of Bob Dylan. Um, there's another few weeks. Check the uh, website for the details. It's January 15th. We can say that out loud, right? That's the date when submissions Absolutely. Are, yeah. are due. So um, a lot of this audience... I know I've talked to a lot of people who are furiously working on their submissions, but um, if anyone hasn't started yet, you still have a little time to get at that. And it sounds like um, late May, early June in Tulsa is going to be the place to be at an even bigger, wilder event than we had a few years ago. So uh, yeah, thank you for welcoming everybody back together. Yeah, of course. It's a great Great. pleasure. We'll be eager to see you and everybody else in Tulsa. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast. It really helps. For bonus episodes and more, become a member at freakmusic.club slash join. And you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at FMC underscore Dylan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.